You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Let's jump into Genesis chapter 2. Um, I, I, I have four things I want you to see in today's text. Firstly, we're going to talk about God's image. Uh, what does it mean that God created man in his own image? Uh, secondly, we'll look at man's dominion and how God has created and, and given mankind uh, dominion and authority on the earth. What, is, what in the world does that mean? Uh, thirdly, we'll look at the creation of woman specifically and, and uh, man's companion and, and what gender looks like and how God created gender and why God created gender. And fourthly and finally, we'll, we'll conclude with God's redemption story and the previews of the redemption that we see at the very beginning of the Bible. And so if you would bow your head with me, let me uh, pray and ask for God's help uh, to assist me as I preach this. Lord, thank you so much for all that you do for us. I thank you for the children in our church that we just had the joy of hearing from. I thank you for uh, your word that we get to dive into and, and study today. Lord, I pray that you would help me as a broken man uh, with fallible words um, to speak in a way that that edifies the church, that it would be rooted in Scripture, um, saturated with the gospel. And so, God, would you help me? Would you help all of us to draw closer to you in this time? And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would accomplish whatever you have purposed for each individual here and watching online, that you would move in our hearts, that you would show us our sin, that you would bring us faith and repentance, and that we would trust you fully. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, point one is God's image. As we look at uh, what scholars know, uh, know or refer to in Latin as the imago Dei, the image of God, um, we, we touch on something that has everything to do with anthropology, which is the study of man, uh, the study of who we are as man. And what's interesting is church history um, has recorded lots of writing. There's lots of books that have been written, and, and theologians and scholars through the years have, have written on lots of different doctrinal issues. And if you look at, at writings, when it, when it first became legal in the world to write Christian writings, uh, it was around um, early 4th century, maybe late 3rd, you see what, what we know as the church fathers begin to write down their doctrine for the first time. Everything was oral beforehand because it was illegal. Um, and Christianity was highly persecuted. Once it becomes legal, they begin to gather in conferences that they called uh, councils, and, um, and they, would, they would come up with creedal confessions and write down what they believed, statements of faith, doctrinal statements, um, and, and they would write and refute false teaching. And so early, early on, you see um, the church fathers refuting anti-Trinitarian works. And so a lot of their writing really dominated um, on the topic of the Trinity, that God reveals himself as three persons and one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, uh, similarly, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, when the Catholic Church had erred into um, a works-based salvation, which at our church we would deny that. You don't have to jump through hoops and do a list of sacraments to be saved. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And so the Protestants, the Protestants, they were protesting the erroneous doctrine of salvation of the Catholic Church. And so in that period of history, in the 16th century, you see a heavy, heavy domination of all the writing focusing on soteriology, the study of salvation. Um, and, and I think it leads us to a point, and I think it's interesting to think about our place in church history and our generation and our time, what will be the topic that kind of dominates our theological study. And I think without question, it's anthropology. The, the, um, the ideologies and the culture of gender fluidity um, brings to question what is man? 
What is woman? How do we define these things? What are the implications of these things? And I think the Bible has the answers for these things, and the beginnings of those answers are found in the beginning of the Bible here in Genesis chapter 2, the creation of man, the details of how we're created, and what God has created us for, and what does it mean that he's placed his image upon us. And when we understand anthropology, the crisis of our day, and, and we can rightly respond theologically to those questions, um, it answers a lot of very important debates in our modern culture, things like abortion, things like what marriage actually is, things like gender dysphoria, and, and how do we respond to things like that. And, and I think when we look at Genesis 2, we have a very clear design by God. As we look at chapter 1, we see the order or the liturgy, as Pastor Jeremy put it, of, of the created things, the universe, the planets, the animals. Um, and, and mentioned in chapter 1 is, is the creation of man. Here in chapter 2, you have um, the detail of the creation of man. In verse 4, Moses writes, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And, and so there's a transitional verse here. Um, generations in, in Hebrew writing typically uh, begins a genealogy. Uh, you guys know what those are? Those are lists of ancestors. It was like Ancestry.com for the Jews. And it's those big lists of names that you skip over when you do your Bible reading plan. Just go to the next one, right? Because um, you can't pronounce all those names, your brain can't pronounce them, and so you're just like, name, 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 next. And, and, and so uh, that language is used actually here in chapter 2. And what's interesting about the way that they would begin genealogies, they would always start uh, with at least one ahead of the main protagonist they were uh, writing about or pointing out. For example, Abraham's story and his uh, genealogy begins with his father, Terah. And, and so as that is outlined, here in chapter 2, verse 4, it says the generations, almost as if it's beginning a genealogy, or the story of man, the anthropology of man, and it begins with the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. And so what's on display here is not the end of creation, concluding with this verse. It's the beginning of the story of man. Um, and it's important that we, we point that out because a lot, of, um, a lot of scholars have denied the fact that Moses wrote the book. First of all, if you're a Christian and you love Jesus, I tend to agree with Jesus. Um, Jesus believed Moses wrote this book, uh, the whole thing. And, um, and, and so some people would assert that chapter 1, uh, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 3 or 4 is one creation account, and then chapter 2, verse 5 and onward is a second creation account that there are two creation accounts written by two different people. They're called the priestly and the Yahwehist authors that are unknown, um, this theory uh, purports. Uh, I would deny all that and say that Moses wrote the whole book, again, siding with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but also um, I think it's a creative way to zoom in on what is the pinnacle of creation, mankind. Um, I, had, I had a picture in my hand the other day. I was holding it. And I, I literally put my hand up to it to zoom in on it. This is what the digital age has done. And I did my fingers like this, you know, to pinch out, you know, zoom in. Y'all ever done that? I'm the only dumb one in the room. Okay. And, and so, like, so if you could imagine looking at the page of your Bible on chapter 1 of Genesis, and you could put your fingers on the Bible and just pinch out and zoom in uh, to the pinnacle of creation, that's what chapter 2 is doing. We're zooming into the creation specifically of mankind. And so this is... Um, the beginning of anthropology. Um, listen, I got, I got married 16 and a half years ago. We're coming up on 17 years. And it was a glorious day. Um, one of the best days of my life. I got to marry my best friend. And 
Uh, we, we were 19 when we got married. I grew up in Lincoln County, small town. Everybody knew us. Uh, we didn't know all them, but they all knew us. And they, they all showed up at our wedding, like people we didn't invite. We, we got married at Middle Fork Baptist Church, and there was like all the seats out there were full. There's a Sunday school room over here, and it was all full, and they opened the doors for that. People were sitting in the choir section behind us while we were saying our vows. And, um, and so the wedding was just a glorious day and celebration. We had a bluegrass band that played afterward. We had a cookout. Uh, there, were, there were little kids with no shirts running around. I mean, it was just a great redneck wedding. But, but I was in such a hurry to leave the wedding, as great as it was, because I was trying to get on with the marriage. You know what I'm saying? Um, I, I, was trying to, I was trying to go to the honeymoon and get on with it. And, and so we don't, we don't disregard and forget the wedding, but the marriage is immensely more important than the one day of celebration, right? And, and we, we need to rightly emphasize the relationship that a wedding um, represents. And, and here at, at the beginning of the Bible, you have the, the, beautiful, um, the beautiful explosion of joy and celebration that is creation. It's a beautiful display of who God is. But, but then we move on to, to what's important, the relationship with the Creator. You see, a wedding is just the beginning, but a marriage is what I'm here for. And similarly with creation, a creation is a beautiful ceremony that's just the beginning of a long and eternal relationship with the Creator. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, and only one of them is completely dedicated to creation. 1,188 of them are dedicated to, again, what I would call anthropology, man's relationship with his or her creator. And so here in the rest of the Bible, we have the story of man, man being redeemed by the creator. And Moses continues and he writes, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist Excuse me. A mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And so, again, I, I don't think Moses' objective was to write for us a scientific textbook. And that's why we don't have all the answers to science in the first two chapters of Genesis. That's not the intention. Although, when he does speak about things that are scientific, I believe he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And again, our Lord Jesus agrees that he wrote it, believed it, and, um, and believes it's the Word of God. And so we take it as absolute truth. And so he does use poetic language, but he speaks of absolute truths. And one of the things he says here is that there was no man to work the ground. Um, I do believe in a literal Adam and Eve, and I think it's imperative as Christians, we believe so as well, that there aren't predating humans to Adam and Eve, that these uh, creatures that, that God forms, the man and the woman, and breathes the breath of life into them, it is imperative that these are the actual first human beings because we're taking God at his word and what he says. And even when science disagrees with it, we can see God's account, um, and I think even science does uh, agree with this being the truth. In verse 27 of chapter 1, it tells us what God is doing. It says he's creating man in the imago Dei, the image of God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so chapter 2 gives us insight into the imago Dei just mentioned in chapter 1. We are God's image. And I want to spend some time unpacking what that might mean. What does it mean that we're God's image to be made in his image. Well, we're the only created beings that are physical and spiritual. Human beings are physical and spiritual. And that sets us apart from animals. 
this, this kind of double nature of a physical and spiritual uh, was written about by Matthew Henry in his commentary on Genesis, which is an excellent commentary if you just want a commentary to look at. It's available for free online. But, but Henry writes, Man is a little world consisting of heaven and earth, soul and body. And, and so even in our makeup, uh, we are reflecting our Creator. And that just as there is a heaven and an earth, that we have a body and, and soul, spirit, spiritual side. And so it's important that we are distinguished from the animals. Now, you animal lovers, you're just going to get mad at me in this sermon. I'm just prepared for the emails to come this week, and I'm going to ignore them because it's Holy Week. I'll get to you later, I promise. Um, I'm joking. Some of you are already mad defending your animals. Sarah McLaughlin's going to start singing. But listen, I know we like to think all dogs go to heaven, right? Um, but... But that's universalism, and we deny that. And so if you think your dog's going to heaven, you just have to admit there's a chance your dog could go to hell, too. And my dog is definitely going to hell. Um, Ain't no chance for my dog. Um, He snarls at me. He just hurts my feelings. He's cruel. Uh, His name's Rogan. You guys have heard, some of you heard me preach about him before, but he just lacks morality big time. Okay? But, but some people will say that morality is the image of God, how God has written his law on the hearts of men, that they would say, well, the image of God is the fact that we have a moral compass, that we are moral creatures. And I would tend to agree on most days with Rogan, right, that he has no sense of morality until sometimes when he does something wrong. You ever walk into the room, like you get home and your dog has done something wrong and you just know it? And it's like, there's some, some kind of sense of morality there. It's like, Rogan's face is, is guilty. Like, I can just see it, right? His tail's down, you know? I'm just like, what'd you do? And he just starts snarling at me, you know? And, and so that, that happens. And so there, even though there's not as much, there is some, some sense of morality there. The same, the same with intelligence. You know, Rogan's as dumb as a box of rocks, but we got some cats, and cats have figured it out, man, I'm telling you. Uh, they've, they've got a lock on the intelligence thing. Um, I tend to think they're dumb. We, we have this new cat named Socks. I call her Sassy because she looks like Sassy from Homeward Bound, but, so she's Sassy Socks. Um, but she, in, in her lack of intelligence, thinks that if she brings a mouse to our doorstep and leaves it, then we will give her a home. It's like, I offer this dead mouse as tribute. But, but her actual intelligence is that it worked. And so somehow she's living in our house now, so, and she rules all of us. And so she, we, she has figured something out. And so even though there's a lack of intelligence, um, there's still some intelligence. And, and like, that's not even mentioned like other animals like dolphins. And you know, there's, there's some that are smarter than some of you. I just won't make eye contact. Okay? And, and so I, I say all that to say I don't think the image of God is just intelligence or just creativity or just morality. I think it has to be something different than that. I think that it's seen in verse 7 where it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground. So God is personal with mankind in a way that he's not personal with the animals. Okay? There's a distinct difference. He's forming man out of the dust with, his physical, with God's physical hands. He's forming the man. Okay? He doesn't do that with any, anything else. And, and then it says, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And so in the breath of life, what God is doing, as he breathes into man, he's granting him a non-physical soul and spirit that is not possessed by the rest of creation. Now, God is Trinitarian, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I tend to believe that humans in the image of God mirror that and that we are also a trichotomy. 
that we are body, soul, and spirit. We see this in lots of parts of Scripture. One of them, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your, listen, whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have a body. There's a physical part of us. Uh, so I think we mirror God in that sense. And then spiritually, we mirror God with our soul and our spirit, which is hard to even decipher. A, a, a verse in Hebrews says that the Bible actually d- divides between the soul and spirit. The soul, I think, would be the eternal part of us, our consciousness, and the spirit would be the seat of intellect, desire, morality, etc., that the animals can merely only mimic. So mankind, again, is the pinnacle of creation, created in God's image, as we are made in God's image, all three, physically, consciously, and spiritually. And then this impacts and gives rise to morality, intelligence, creativity, art, so forth, and so on. And this beautiful creation of human beings to God's glory. And then God, furthermore, gives us dominion. So let's look at that. Point two is that we look at man's dominion. God gives man and woman dominion over the earth, over creation, over animals, for our enjoyment and for God's glory. And so whether you tend to eat more animals or cuddle more animals, you are still exercising dominion. Okay, And, and he, we get a, a, an overview of this again in chapter 1. God God blesses the man and the woman. In verse 28, it says, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God's plan is that man would live and inhabit and rule over the earth and that then through that he would receive glory. And God plants a beautiful garden as the starting point of that reign. Uh, we call it the Garden of Eden. I think most interesting is uh, all the, all the uh, descriptions of this seem to be common knowledge, at least at the time that Moses is writing this. And so in ancient times, Eden was a place, a, a large geographical region that, that the readers would have known where uh, Moses was referring to. Moses actually says the description of, of the garden is given in verses 8 through 14, but he says that the garden is in the east, and, and I think that he's, he's saying that it is in the eastern part of Eden. Um, Eden is not the garden itself. There is a garden in Eden. We say the garden of Eden, but it's, it's a similar type of... Um, and so imagine large geographical area, probably Mes- ancient Mesopotamia, um, and, and here in that section, in the eastern part, there is a garden that the Lord... Uh, plants and puts the man into. We're told that Eden's rivers forked into four rivers. Um, Moses calls them the the Pashon, the the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Two of those rivers we can identify uh, through ancient history and even modern geography, and we know that they're in Mesopotamia um, in modern-day Iraq, just to give you a frame of mind, uh, middle of the map, right when you look at uh, a map of the world. Um, The other two uh, are unknown. Uh, those, are, those are names that they're not called by anymore, um, maybe even rivers that don't exist anymore. But one of them likely refers to an African river because the, the location of Cush is given. And so the current geography, again, doesn't have to match perfectly because the flood just shook things up big time. We'll get to that in chapters 6, 7, and 8. Um, but I do think that there was a central, centrally located on the globe, physical place, um, so much so that Moses felt comfortable naming the places and said, this is where mankind began. And God places Adam in this garden to work it and keep it. And he gives him a job. And so dominion begins with work. 
In verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so God gives very clear instructions, again, for his glory. Um, And so he tells him to work, tells him to keep the garden, and he says, there's one tree, don't eat from that tree. I hope you all come back next week, but spoiler alert, just in case you don't make it, they eat from the tree, okay? It does not go well. They disobey God, and that's what we're going to talk about on Easter, okay? But, but think of it as, as the Heavenly Father giving his children a task to do. Now, I give my, my kids tasks and jobs to do sometimes. I give them chores. Sometimes, frankly, it's just because I'm a lazy human, and I just want, I've got five kids. That's the benefit of five kids. It's a lot of child labor you can get for free, okay? You carry the groceries up. I no longer have to lose my arms in that battle. Kids, get the groceries upstairs, right? And, and so... But, but here you have a reflection of what God is doing in giving work to, uh, giving dominion to his children for their good. That, that even in giving tasks to my kids, sometimes it's for their good so that they will learn uh, the value of hard work and the, and the satisfaction of working hard. Sometimes it's in service to their father and it's good to love your dad. Um, it's very rarely, though, out of my dependence upon them, right? I can carry the groceries up to our house. My arms will fall off, but I'll do it in one trip, okay? Um, I'm, not, I'm very rarely dependent on my kids. Um, God is never dependent on his kids. As a perfect father, he never needs human beings for anything, but yet in his grace and his love, he gives us tasks and dominion. And so God does not give us dominion or work out of necessity, but out of his desire that we would glorify him in it. And so if you look at the creation of man and anthropology as a whole and say, what is my purpose in life? What's the point of everything? Well, it's like Jeremy said earlier in the service, it is for God's glory. Revelation 4.11, the very end of the book, uh, says, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Scripture further emphasizes that Jesus is himself the preeminent creator. And so Jesus Christ is active in creation. Colossians 1 makes this clear. It says, for by him, it's talking about Jesus, for by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so man's dominion and reign on the created earth is an act of worship to our creator. And we must exercise our dominion within his design. We have to. To go against his design and his order in the dominion that he has freely given us is the highest treason, and we call it sin, Doing things the way we want to do them rather than how God has commanded us to do them. Let's look at man's companion. Eve comes in, screws everything up, right? Um, But Eve, I already got the ladies against me. That was a joke, uh, I promise. And we're getting to uh, the height of creation actually is the woman. Adam in Hebrew literally means man. 
Um, the, his name just means man. Matter of fact, if you read Genesis 1 and 2 and you see some instances it says the man and some instances it says Adam, if you read the Hebrew manuscript, it's exactly the same words. Um, and so it was just translators sometimes choosing to use a name, Adam, and sometimes choosing to say the man. But here, uh, the man gets a companion named Eve. Uh, Genesis 3.20 tells us about her name. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. This is so beautiful. In Hebrew, Eve, Yeva, means life giver. And, and let me just, in case any of you would have the chauvinistic thought that Eve is somehow less of an image bearer of God than Adam is, she is uh, very much an image bearer of her creator. Mirroring her creator, woman is able to carry and form and deliver life. Spiritually, in nurture, but also physically, in labor and delivery. Matthew Henry continues in his commentary and he says, If man is the head, she is the crown. A crown to her husband, the crown of visible creation. She was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. So Adam and Eve are different. They're the same in their image bearing of God. They're the same in their value before God, but they are distinct genders as God creates male and female. And what I love about the creation of Eve is you get to the height, like everything's done, right? You ever just finish a job and step back and you're just like, yes, I'm finished. But then there's like something that's a little bit off and you got to jump back into work, right? Every, everything in creation is good, except this one thing. Everything is good. God creates light, and he says, it's very good. God creates uh, land and separates it from the water and says, it's good. God creates stars and sun and moon and celestial bodies and says, it's good. God creates fish and birds and land animals and says, it's good. He creates man and says, it's good. Everything God creates, he steps back and says, it's good. And the only thing in all of creation that's not good is the lack of a woman. Verse 18 says, the Lord God said, it is not good. It's the first time in history that something wasn't good. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, a helper, in, in Hebrew, it's ezer. It does not mean servant. It does not mean slave. It means support. It, means a, it, was, it was used physically to describe a lean-to, like a post would, would give support to a wall. Um, more, um, more symbolically used, it was used in the Hebrew language to reflect someone who came to a rescue of someone in need. Humanitarian aid is how it's commonly used, to bring relief to someone who is lacking something that they need to survive. And so God looks at Adam and he says, he ain't going to make it by himself. Adam doesn't have any sin. Adam's never messed up. He is the perfect man, sinless, flawless, created by God himself. And Adam is looked upon by God and God says, this ain't good. He needs support. And he creates the second gender, woman, to complete the image of God, the crown of creation. Any of y'all do puzzles? It's okay. You don't have to admit it. Um, my daughter loves to do puzzles, and my nana used to do puzzles, and I've, I've never loved to do puzzles, 
But what I have learned to do, and if you haven't done this, I would highly recommend it, stealing one puzzle piece as someone else does a puzzle and keeping it until the puzzle is complete except for that one piece, right? My nan would be walking around her house cussing because she lost a piece of the puzzle, and I'd be like, ha, and I have the one final puzzle piece to put in to make it, make it all perfect, right? And you can see what the picture's supposed to be, all the outlines there, and you can make out what it is, but there's just that one glaring piece that's missing. And here, God comes in with Eve with that last puzzle piece of creation and bestows it upon Adam. In verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. And so Adam's seeing the whole puzzle, but there's something missing. Incredibly sad verse in the Bible. It says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There was not found a support. There was not found a lean to or any sort of aid for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And, the ri- and with the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man wakes up. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Again, in the Hebrew language, that's poetic. I always tell you guys, Adam falls asleep. He wakes up, sees a naked woman, and starts singing. It's a beautiful picture of creation here. Now, what are the implications of God creating male and female, creating a companion for the man? Well, one implication that I think is deeply impactful for our day is that there are two genders, and not more and not less. And that gender fluidity and dysphoria sells a lie that our nature and identity is determined from the inside out, that how we feel determines who we are. The Bible gives a completely different narrative than that. The Bible presents the opposite, in fact, that we are not who we are and what we are designed to be based on our feelings and our emotions, but rather we are created by an outside loving and gracious and understanding creator who has created us to be who he wants us to be. And so our identity is not found from the inside out, it's found from the outside in. And so when we say, well, how I feel determines who I am, the Bible says, no, you cannot trust how you feel because you are fallen and depraved ever since Adam and Eve ate from that tree and disobeyed. God has created you and has a plan for you, and your purpose in life is not to find yourself, it's to find God. And the cultural lie that's being sold by, by the millions right now is that your purpose is just to figure yourself out. Even if you can figure yourself out, you will be sorely disappointed because you're looking far too shallowly in creation. God has created you to find him and understand who he's created you to be in light of who he is and ultimately worship him for eternity. The second implication is on companionship itself. Specifically in marriage, but, but even just generically in companionship. We, we see what I, I believe to be the first wedding in Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Verse 25 tells us the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Meaning there's no shame, there's no sin, there's no imperfections. What we have on display at the end of Genesis chapter 2 is God's perfect design. Flawless. There's work to do. There's companionship to be had. One of the greatest applications I can pull you to from this text is that even if you have it all together, and that's a big if, because I know you guys, okay? Even if you've got it all together, you still need people in your life. Adam was theologically, physically, spiritually perfect. 
And God said, he needs somebody. Why in the world do we think in our sin we would be any different? We don't need anybody to help us. We're strong enough. We got it figured out. I can do church on my own. I can read the Bible on my own. I don't need companionship. Well, the Bible says you do. Even somehow, if you're perfect, you need community. You need people. Let's look at God's redemption lastly. In God's redemption, I want to wax philosophical with you for a little bit. God's ultimate narrative and story of all of creation is to create for his glory and redeem for his glory. And we play a very significant part in that by, by his grace. But if God created all for his glory, why in the world would he not just keep everything perfect? Why even allow for the chance that Adam and Eve could mess it up by eating from that tree that he put there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why did he put that there? Well, number one, it made man a free moral agent. It gave him a choice to be obedient or to sin. I used to think that the knowledge of good and evil came once they bit into the fruit, that there was just like a supernatural thing that when they bit in, they would just gain all this knowledge. And, I was, and, and I'm tempted to think like Eve thought, like, well, what's so bad about that? But as I study this, I tend to believe that the knowledge was actually there when the tree was planted. By the tree just existing and sitting over there, what God had done is he had given them the knowledge of good and evil, just in its existence. What is good? To eat from every other tree, to do what God told you. What is evil? To eat from that tree, the only one that God said do not eat. To disobey God is evil, and to obey God is good. The knowledge was already there. And the tempter comes in, and he tempts them with having insufficient knowledge, yet they had it all the time. So what's God teaching us in this? Well, that even though they fall, even though they fail, that in the end, all of redemption is worth all the glory in heaven. That even though we rebel, it's worth it. That even though Jesus had to come and die for us, it's worth it for the glorious story of redemption. And then we see in the garden, the heavenly father gives his daughter's hand in marriage, Eve to Adam. The climax of creation before sin happens is a wedding. What's, God's, what's God teaching us in this fact, that there's a wedding at the, at, the, at the top of all of creation? Well, it's a foretaste of redemption, a union of God's daughter, the church, with God's son, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. You see, the Someone said, I wish I could remember who said it, but someone said one time, and I've held on to it, that the best commentator on the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So if you're ever confused about something in the Old Testament, uh, the best thing to do is look about what's written about it in the New Testament. And there's an exact quote of Genesis 2.24 in Ephesians chapter 5, which we just finished preaching through. And in that letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul writes, and he quotes Genesis. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the commentator on the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, says that Genesis 2.24 is about Christ and the church. That's what it's about. From the very beginning, the Genesis, God's plan is redemption through the Son. And I already told you, a wedding it's just the beginning. A marriage is what we're after, right? So we can love the creation, but we got to love the relationship with the creator even more. 
And our temptation is to worship ourselves or worship our pets or worship our hobbies or worship our time. All these things that are creation. Romans 1 tells us that we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie when we worship creation rather than the creator. There's nothing wrong with all those things, but they're not our object of worship. We're not after the wedding. We're after the marriage. And as God molded man out of the dirt, the cross was in view. God knew his plan of redemption. As Jesus, the creator, pulled a rib from Adam's side to create his wife Eve, Jesus knew his side would be pierced with a spear on the cross. As Eve is brought to Adam and presented to him, God knows that his church, the bride of Christ, will be presented one day in paradise and fullness. You see, Jesus, our creator, is also Jesus, our redeemer. And this is a beautiful truth to think about this Holy Week. You ever think about Jesus building stuff? He's a carpenter. He's sitting there working on a table, looking at the Ikea instructions. And he just looks up at the mountains. He's like, I made those. Why is this so hard, right? In his humanity, he felt struggles, yet he was the infinite and eternal creator. There's a blind man that comes up to him one time and needs healing. And Jesus hawks a big loogie on the ground makes mud on the dirt, puts it on the guy's face. Everyone around has to be thinking, what on earth is he doing? Jesus is doing what he did in Genesis chapter 2. He's molding the blind man with his imperfection back into the perfection that he originally designed. Jesus uh, continues as he, as he just lives in creation. He speaks to the wind and the waves. We just read from the Jesus Storybook Bible. I love how she puts it and says that, that they recognized his voice. He was the one that made them. That as he created the wind and the waves, when, when his disciples are afraid of the wind and the waves, he as creator and redeemer speaks and he says, peace be still. Another instance where people probably thought Jesus was pretty weird is in John chapter 20, after he had risen from the dead, Jesus says to his disciples, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Why is he breathing on people? That's not socially appropriate. Again, he's mirroring exactly what he did in Genesis 2 when he breathed the breath of life into man. In all of creation, I could give you even more examples than that. In all of creation, what God is doing is he's taking what we have muddled and messed up his image that's marred and tainted by sin. And he is remolding us, rebreathing us, reanimating us to come back into his perfect design for his glory that we will embrace and have for eternity. And all of this culminates in his death on a cross. He takes all of our sin and places it upon himself. All the mess that we had created, he says, the only way I can free them from it is to take it all upon myself, to become just like them in every way and put it all on my shoulders so that I can bring them back into the plan that they, they walked away from. And he raises from the dead victorious that we'll celebrate next week. And not only does he take all of our sin, but he takes all of his perfection that was built into the image of God in the first place, and he, he just freely dishes it out to us in grace and gives it out, saying, I love you. Be who I've called you to be. 
We spend our lives stumbling and struggling through this, but we have a promise that one day we will be perfected again like he's designed. Amen? We can bring him glory like he has designed us to do. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.